Great, thanks guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for coming today. Uh, if you're visiting especially, we, as Leah said, want to welcome you to, uh, to our church. Thanks for coming. Welcome all of you from home listening in. Glad you're joining virtually as well. Uh, today we are going to continue our series in 1 Timothy. So if you have a Bible or a phone app want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, please feel free to do that. For context, we'll be in uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 20 today. Um, just a really short recap, 1 Timothy is the first letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote to his protege, Timothy, who is, if you remember, left in Ephesus to pastor a church there. So these um, letters that Paul wrote, uh, these pastorals we call them, uh, two to Timothy, one to Titus, are uh, rich in theology. They are, they are kind of contextually written to pastors on all things pastoring. Uh, so the characteristics of pastors, what their job description essentially is, how they should spend their time, what are the threats facing the church primarily, uh, what they should not worry about and focus on maybe as well. Uh, there's uh, things that come up kind of along those lines too. Some pretty actually specific things. Uh, if you're here the first week, I listed out a bunch of questions that the book raises that are going to be really fun to uh, unpack and talk about. So we'll um, continue that this week as well. But it is a book for everybody. Most of you will never be a pastor, and that's actually good. We don't need a ch churches full of 60% pastors or something like that. That'd be way too many. Uh, and so we, but it is still um, to your benefit that these letters are written. Uh, not just that you would know what a pastor should be or what they should do, but that you would hear the voice of your Savior call out to you through them. Because when you talk about a human pastor, you just by definition talk about the chief shepherd, the pastor, right? There's a correlation there uh, between the two. And so this is really a book about the gospel, even though it's steeped in context, it's steeped in history, uh, it's steeped in the specificity of a pastor writing to encourage another younger pastor, it is still um, for all of us. Uh, and you actually get glimpses of that. Even today, we'll see some of that in the language Paul utilizes. To, he clearly has more than Timothy in mind when he writes. That came up uh, last week, I think, as well, or the week before. Um, but hopefully you're seeing that, uh, that as well. But this is a book about Jesus. It's, a, it's about the good news of Jesus Christ uh, primarily. Uh, and so um, even though there are times I'll step aside and talk to pastors in the room, um, primarily it's, it's for us. All right, so today we're going to look at the eternal value of a trustworthy saying from 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 20. Let's read this in full to begin. Paul kind of continues this extended introduction in a way, but kind of getting now to some of the meat of the letter. He says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for, sorry guys, I'm on the screen today, uh, who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of kings, uh, king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. 
among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. All right, so let me just start uh, off by uh, kind of acknowledging, you may have a sense as I was talking to Peter and Leah this morning, we were praying before the service, this, um, this passage is really emotional. And, and I don't mean that um, in the sense that we need to respond emotionally to get truth from it. I just mean for Paul, it's emotional. Uh, it is, uh, there are a lot of highs, a lot of encouraging kind of high heavenly things. There are a lot of low warfare-like um, apostasy type uh, things here at the end. You see uh, some very, very emotional, difficult things for Paul in his life that um, in this sermon today too, we'll kind of just weave in and out of a lot of them. So there's a lot, a lot to that. But let me just start by saying that for Paul, you really get to see into Paul's heart here. Uh, as, as a lot of you know, uh, we say this a lot here. We try to acknowledge this when it does come up because it doesn't always in every passage come up for, for Paul when he writes. Uh, but in some passages, he really starts to just get emotive and he, he gets honest. And I think in this case, in today's passage, very vulnerable and open with Timothy uh, in ways that... Um, you, that, that are kind of unique. Kind of like a mentor might turn to a mentee or a student and say, here's my story. Like this is, so not just here's something I have to say to you, but here's, let's put that aside for a second. Here's my story. This is where I came from. And in this case, I'm not a great person. I was simply shown mercy by God. That's my story. I'm not a good guy. I was simply, for some reason that no one knows except God, I was uh, shown mercy. He actually does get, uh, he gives a reason here later. We'll get to that. But basically, um, I was loved. I was shown mercy. And that's why I had this role as an apostle, as an apostle and a um, mentor of yours, as a pastor. And so a lot of, a lot of you guys know I spend um, some of my time, not a lot, but some of my time assessing church planters with Acts 29 uh, and also Converge, uh, our our denomination, but with Acts 29, one of our networks, and this is, um, so we see kind of pastors talking to each other here, kind of conversing. This is something that I'm really encouraged by uh, when I gather with grace-centered pastors. You know, we, we talk less about our philosophies of ministry and how big our churches are and what we're doing right, and when you're around pastors that kind of think this way, Paul does, um, we just talk more about how God chose to use broken men, broken individuals with imperfect plans to do great things in his kingdom in order to show that it's not by works that we're saved or by our effort that we grow churches, but simply by his grace alone. Because you can apply the same way of thinking to your salvation as you could to being like the role of a pastor or like starting a church, uh, pastoring a church, uh, or any type of ministry work for any of you uh, as Christians, that could be pastoring, could be anything. You know, do we credit God ultimately with that or ourselves, right? And Paul's clearly doing the, the former here, crediting God with it. But, um, but it's very encouraging for younger pastors kind of coming through the pipelines to hear that it is really, not that there aren't things to talk about when it comes to like, you know, philosophies, ministry, and rights and wrongs when it comes to like best practices and so forth. But um, at the end of the day, pa churches are healthy just because God wants them to be. Uh, he allows them to be. Uh, it is not the pastor, it's not his plans, not his visioning, not his giftings. Uh, it's really God through that person at, uh, at, at the end of the day. And, and Paul's recognizing that, I think, here uh, to Timothy. So really encouraging for pastors to hear 
frightening and crushing uh, to hear the opposite, as you might expect. I mean, to hear that there's this maze God expects pastors to take this book to read, this, this uh, you know, ecclesiological arithmetic to, like, figure, this, like, calculus to figure out, high calculus, um, otherwise you're going to fail, crushing, right? But, but to know that, um, like I was, super insecure, 28-year-old, uh, never pastored before, but entering into pa- to pastoring this church, planting this church, super insecure. But to know some of this stuff, that uh, in the spirit of Paul saying, I'm the worst of people, the most messed up guy on the planet, that God said, I'm going to choose you and use you. Uh, to have that kind of bookending way of thinking about um, ministry success, I guess, uh, was incredibly encouraging and still, still is for me. Uh, this day, and I know many others as well. That aside, let's, I want to talk more about that for a second. This is the first thing um, I want to do, though, today, is talk about Paul, Paul's story as an example. Uh, verses 12, we're going to look at verses 12 to 14 primarily, but when he, so when he says here, um, in the middle here, when he says, I receive mercy because I acted in ignorance, he's not saying ignorant sins are the only ones forgiven or none of us would be forgiven. Uh, but he, he's probably comparing himself to these false teachers we talked about last week in saying they started well, they claim to be Christian, but are now shifting and teaching false doctrine. Paul's saying, um, I am many things sin-wise, but I'm not that. I, I'm not someone who um, converted and now I'm teaching you false doctrine. He's saying I'm teaching you the right things. And so he's probably kind of comparing himself on that level with them by saying he's, um, he, uh, you know, was shown mercy because he acted in ignorance. In any case, here's what he is saying, though. He's saying, I, again, I received this role as an apostle by grace, and, and more than that, I received salvation by God's grace and love through Jesus Christ. Uh, even though, and note these strong words, even though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, remember he was killing Christians, imprisoning Christians, tearing Christian families apart, and he was an opponent, which, which is to say an enemy of God's people and ultimately of, of God himself. Uh, we're not going to look at Acts 9 today, but if you want to look at uh, this guy's conversion narrative, it's actually in the Bible. Uh, and so if you remember parts of that, when he was literally on the road to killing more Christians, imprisoning, persecuting more believers, uh, Jesus shines from heaven. This light just blinds Paul. He gets knocked off his whatever he's riding. Uh, and onto his butt and just like can't see, but Jesus calls out to him and says, um, I am Jesus, uh, and I'm saving you, and I'm showing you grace and mercy. Go to this city, and I'll tell you what, what's next in, in store for you. So, um, but again, Paul, is, Paul was on the road of sin, oblivious, filled by murderous hate. Um, and, and so these words, uh, this is important to see. All sin is sin, but Paul's saying, he's not saying here like, yeah, nobody's perfect, um, I stole a Cheerio from my sister once when I was seven or something. Like, he, he's saying, I was, I was a blasphemer. I was a God-hater. I spoke, um, I spoke against God. I denounced him uh, in, in my actions, even though he was kind of, um, he would say ignorant in that, in that sense, but still blasphemer. I was killing uh, the, the children of God, essentially. I was harming the bride of Christ, and I was an enemy. Um, filled by murderous hate, yet I was loved. I mean, this is like, so to have that on the one side and then the other side, I was still loved and saved, that is, to put it mildly, that is radical grace, right? Radical grace. Uh, It's dialed up here uh, with his self-description to show us, as he says here, 
that grace didn't just come to him, but I love this word, it overflowed. A lot of you guys might know this is a common biblical idea for not just for grace, but for other characteristics of God. But Paul says the grace of our Lord Jesus spilled over. It's overflowed uh, to me. Uh, The idea being God went beyond a certain allotted amount. God was willing to make a mess on the table for me, to spill his grace over. Uh, It's kind of like when you, um, you guys ever been to Five Guys Hamburgers? And they put a hamburger in, and then they give you fries, and then they also just take more fries and pour it in the bag, and there's grease pouring out, and you look in, and you think, you know, I hope there's a burger in there somewhere, because you can't even see it, and you're like, and you think, I didn't order all those fries, I didn't, I don't feel like I paid for that, what an absolute mess, but I'll take it, (laughs) right, like yum, it's, it's the same with Jesus, overflowing means the mess of his grace goes past the limits because when it comes to God's grace, there are no limits for sinners. It's theologically crucial that it overflows. If it just met a certain standard, what if your sin went past the standard? Then what would you do? You'd have nothing, no hope. But as Romans 5.20 said, like we read last week, when sin abounded, grace abounded what? All the more. It overflowed, went past the limit of your sin. The, 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 uh, wherever your sin went up to, grace abounded all the more. So overflowing uh, might seem like just this simple uh, verb here. It overflowed, right? The simple word, but it's actually uh, crucial. It is the gospel in a word. Uh, God's grace goes past the limits. There is no, if you're a sinner like me, the, the good news is you, there. There is no, like, sin limit uh, in terms of, like, how much God's willing to spend to save us, right? Uh, God's grace abounds all the more, praise God. So th- then there's the kicker here in verse 16. So he says, I receive mercy for this reason. This is kind of interesting, right? So he's going past saying, I receive mercy just because God loved me and wanted to save me. Um, he says, there's another reason. Verse 16, I received mercy, I was saved I was killing Christians, but then Jesus saved me, and now I am one. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Isn't that awesome? Notice how he goes past Timothy here. This is for us. I mean, it's all for us, no matter what, right? But this is clearly, this is more explicitly for us. He's saying, everyone who was to believe in Jesus for eternal life, all of you in the room who has believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and who has the promise, the hope of eternal life, Paul received mercy so that he might be an example to you. And to those of you who are not saved yet, who are not Christians yet, you might see that God's mercy overflows to you as well. He's basically saying, use my life as a mirror. I was saved as the worst of people to show other really bad people that no one is out of God's reach. He's saying, I was saved to show that it must be by grace that we're saved, not works, because I was literally in the act of killing God's children when he reached down, other Christians, when he reached down, interrupted my hellbound race, forgave me, and turned my heart towards him. 
it can't be based on what we do because there was nothing good Paul was doing. There was nothing profitable. There was nothing that was turning God's head. So we, Paul is saying, let my life be an apologetic or a defense for the idea of grace because everyone, this is everyone's story. No matter what you were doing when Jesus interrupted your hellbound race, we all were, were not worthy of being saved. Um, and so, so, so again, Paul's saying, use my life as a mirror. It's all of us right now in the room. These are, this is God's word to us. It's like if we're, if we're in sin, and we are, but if we're struggling to believe God's love for us or trust in its sufficiency, um, what, what, Paul, what God, not just Paul to Timothy, what God is saying through here is, listen, you guys, to what I'm saying to you in 1 Timothy 1.16. God is saying, be deeply consoled by my overflowing love for Paul, knowing it's the same love I have for you. Do you hear his voice in that? And not just Paul's for, um, for Timothy, not just like a historical and conversion narrative, but see how it widens out? God wants us, he saved a guy so that we, sitting here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the year 2021, might read this and say, I'm like Paul. I'm just as bad. Um, if he saved Paul, maybe he can save me um, by grace and not by works. And, and so the invitation, to use other language here, God says, believe in me. Believe in me. Trust me uh, for, for eternal life. Then he moves into verse 15. So um, the trustworthy saying of the gospel. Verse 15 says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is such a great verse, you guys. Uh, some of you are probably hearing this for the first time. This is one of the more summative, pithy, succinct descriptions of what the Christian gospel is anywhere in the New Testament. It's beautiful. It's summative. Um, I also think it's confrontational in, in a lot of ways as well, especially in, in how it starts. Let's start there. Paul says, not just the saying is like the gospel, and this is, this is like how I'd summarize it, but he says this, he describes it. The saying is a trustworthy saying, and it's deserving. So certainly, I think for Paul, to use those words, if you were here last week, if you weren't, um, just bear with me, but like if you were last week, we talked about the nature of the false teachers in Ephesus, what they were teaching, and how they were legalistic and different things like that, but Certainly for Paul, I think that this is a, at least a soft pushback against some of that law-centered false teaching going on in Ephesus. But widening out, though, to all of us, here's something the Bible never says. The Bible never says that you are trustworthy. The Bible never says you are deserving. It actually does say that you're deserving. It says you're deserving of death, though. All right, so it never describes human beings as worthy of trust. Never describes us as, as being deserving of God's love or deserving of salvation. Nor does it say that God considers us worthy of trust. God doesn't trust you. And that's actually good news. That might sound like an insult, but it's not. It's actually really good news. Uh, Jesus says in John, in John 2, if I can go back there. Oh, I skipped ahead. John 2, 24 and 25, it says, Jesus would not put his trust in people or entrust himself to people for he knew what was in them. 
And so the idea to all of this is that the gospel is that even though we were undeserving and incapable of good, we were loved and fought for and died for by Jesus, right? But here it says, there is something though in the universe that is worthy of our trust. There is something deserving. It's not you, it's not me, it's Jesus. It's the saying, it's the gospel. This saying or the word of God, which is Christ, is worthy of trust and deserving of our full acceptance. And what that saying is, is that Jesus Christ came into the world. It doesn't say uh, that Jesus asked us to come to him, but rather he came into the world. Martha says this in John 11, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And that last clause might seem sort of like, you know, kind of like an unnecessary aside, but it's actually not. It's part of the gospel. Jesus came into the world and became human. He came into the swamp of our sin and our fallen condition. He became human because in our sin, we were trying so hard to become like God. And God said, stop. And he became like us instead in order to die for us. You know, whereas, like I said last week, other religions say, become like God, whereas Christianity says, God became like you in order to save you. So stop ascending and allow him to come down into your life and receive, the Bible, John 1 says, receive all who received him that implies he's the active mover right who received him he gave the right to become children of god right christ jesus the messiah the promised one the son of god came into the world in order to save sinners not to primarily teach sinners or adjust our moral compass five degrees but to save them, to, and not, not good people, but to save sinners. Because remember, he didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick, as he himself says in Mark 2. And then again, Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. And I think there is, um, we, we've kind of been talking about this, but there is something so liberating and freeing about that phrase being said by the guy who wrote half the New Testament. Uh, that phrase being said by a Christian, you know, uh, he's not hiding it. Um, a lot of commentators, not a lot, but some commentators look at that and they, they think, well, Paul must just be talking about his life before he was saved. And I think that just loses all of the punch, all of the dramatic power, all of the theology. Um, he's talking about his life as a believer, um, not to excuse any sin, but just to say, I mean, in my DNA, I am an insolent, I'm, I'm an enemy. In my DNA, I'm a sinner. But in any case, for a believer to say this, you know, kind of like, if you click on the hyperlink of that, I think Paul is basically saying, this is how Christians should think, I'm not trying to be the best person in the world. This is not how Christians think, right, or shouldn't. Like, like my goal every morning is not, I'm really trying hard to be the best person in the world. In fact, I'm owning the fact that I'm not. But I am trying to draw near to him by being close to his church. I'm seeking to know him more. As he says in Philippians 3, the power of his resurrection, living underneath the liberating and trustworthy saying of the gospel and praying his goodness will shine out of me and spill out of me onto others. 
All right? And then he goes into this last part. Uh, we'll spend some time on this to, to start to wrap up here. Let me read this again, though. This kind of flows out of what he says. He says in, um, in verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by then you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Blaspheme means to speak against God in a very, like to denounce him uh, in a very formal, in a a very formal sense, maybe not all the time formal, but it means to speak against God. It means with our beliefs, actions, words, to kind of come against him and to denounce him and dethrone him. All right, so I want to look at this phrase, though, wage the good warfare. I was thinking about this this past week, um, not in any way claiming to know what's in Peter's mind uh, when he's reading this, but um, as also as a pastor, like when I read, when you read the letter kind of in order, you get to this point and you see, you see wage the good warfare, you think, I wonder if Timothy's thinking, oh, like I'm in a war? You know, like I didn't realize, I didn't realize, didn't realize that, uh, as if the job wasn't hard enough, you know? Now I'm like in a war. Um, already. It kind of like in this very weird way reminded me of um, you guys know the, the uh, comedian Jim Gaffigan. Thank you for his last name. Uh, his bit on being a parent of five kids. You ever heard this? Where he says being a parent of five kids is like you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. You know? <laughs> so good. He says it way better of course but um, I feel like, you know, kind of, it's not really the same. But I'm just, like, for a pastor to hear, oh, my gosh, like, all this stuff already. And there is a lot Paul's asking of Timothy as a pastor. And he's going to ask more. But then to say, oh, by the way, you're in a war. You're being sniped every day, you know. And the devil hates you. And he's always, always scheming against you to destroy you and to kind of lead you off the path. It's like, oh, great, you know. That's, that's awesome. Um, but anyway, he still says that, though, right? I... I want you, and this is for pastors, I think this is for all Christians, though, we're in a war, right? Um, but what's the first question you would ask if someone told you you're in a war? You'd probably ask, against whom, right? Who am I fighting against? And the answer to that is, it's not God anymore, because we've been turned from enemies into friends and sons and daughters of the king, right? So we're no longer at war with God, that's part of the gospel, nor is it against people because the Bible says the war is not against flesh and blood from Ephesians 6. The enemy, though, is the devil. And it, it, this could also, I think, figuratively be understood as a war of perseverance. So whereas there's not really like a personified enemy, but just the war is that this is a fight. Uh, a lot, it feels like that a lot of times to sort of um, lead a church into the promised land from a pastor's perspective or lead yourself or, you know, stay on the straight and narrow kind of thing, so that there's that angle as well. Matthew 16, 18 says, uh, the church is advancing against, this is Jesus' words. The church is on the offensive. The church is advancing against the gates, the defensive measure of hell. Advancing against the gates of hell. And we run a rescue shop within a yard of it, to quote C.T. Studd. You've heard that before. Our weapons are faith, Paul says here. Wage the good warfare, holding faith. Right? Wage the good warfare, holding faith, as if that's like, you know, hold it here. But that's what we fight with. We, we fight with faith. We fight with belief in Jesus. We fight with trust 
trusting the only one worthy of our trust, which is God. We fight with God's word, Ephesians 6 says. We fight with the blood of Jesus, Revelation 12 says. In one sense, we don't have any weapons because we don't fight with our hands. We fight with our belief. We believe that God fights our battles for us, right? The other question, though, we might ask is to what end? And the answer to that is to win souls and to persevere Christians or persevere the saints. I was kind of talking a little bit about that. Uh, But here's the thing, and you see it here in this passage, right? There will be casualties. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul says, wage the good warfare right next to the actual names of two men who actually lived, who left the church, left Jesus, and made a complete shipwreck of their faith. You guys see that? It's not, not, not a coincidence. You're in a war, and here's two named men who used to be in your church, uh, Timothy. Actually, we don't know exactly where, where they were currently at, but two named men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were, we thought they were Christians. Now they're not. These are casual. These are like, this is a big deal. This is incredibly sobering and sad that this happened. We don't know if they came back or not. That was clearly Paul's aim, is that hopefully that wasn't, they we're going to stay on that destructive path and leave Christianity, leave the church, but that's, that's all we know. Uh, this. So we call these types of people apostates. If you heard that phrase before, it means rebel. Those who begin well but don't finish, who start off looking Christian but who show by their failure to finish that they never were really in to begin with. Uh, Jesus talks a lot about this. Paul clearly does here. The author of Hebrews does. It's all over the New Testament. It's a, it's a warning. We're in a war, and and although victory is 100% assured for those who fight with faith, the reality is people lay down that weapon all the time and start to fight with their own hands. Um, The Bible says they think themselves strong when they're actually weak. They think themselves wise, which leads to their insanity. And so I I think there are a couple of things that happens then that that are kind of the same, kind of different. Uh, In one sense for these people, the world becomes more beautiful to them. You know, uh, sin does. There's a, reason, there's a reason why people leave spouses, Jesus, and the church at the exact same time a lot. Uh, that's happened here. We've seen that. Uh, you guys probably know instances of this, um, or you will. It's sad. But there's a reason why that happened, because it's sort of like a, as the world becomes more enticing, Jesus becomes less that, right? And so like an act of adultery is not just a rebellion against your spouse if you're married, um, but it's against God, right? And so there's a reason why that, that's, there's this kind of triplicate thing happening a lot. Not all the time. But so on, on, the one, on the one hand of things, this is about sin. This is about the world becoming more beautiful than Jesus. But there's another thing going on here too. Also remember, he says their faith is shipwrecked, Right? When faith is shipwrecked, that means the opposite type of ship is usually the thing that it was wrecked for. And the opposite of faith in the Bible, remember, is flesh or us, our bodies, or what we do, or the law, as Paul kind of juxtaposes. It's a dualism that Paul brings up a lot in his letters. So these men are also abandoning the gospel. They are leaving behind, (laughs) jumping off the ship, of the principle of being saved by grace. They're abandoning it 
which always looks like um, thinking too highly of oneself, the addition of rote moralism that does not proceed from faith, um, and many other things like that. And so, you see how they're different? They're kind of the same but different. There's two things that are probably both going on for these men, but these guys aside, just like in life, it can be one or both of these things that ends up leading, leading Christians away. All right, let me dial this up a little bit more as uncomfortable as this might be for some of you in the room. Uh, there have been Hymenaeuses and Alexanders at Hiawatha Church. I kind of said that before. But I just, just want to be clear. This has happened. This is not theory. We're not talking about something that happens for bad churches out there or something. Um, this has happened here. This is real. People you thought were Christians now have their names right next to Hymenaeus and Alexander unless they repent and come back and turn. Um, there are people, if you were guys were a part of the church before the pandemic, there are people that you were singing next to out loud, taking communion with, laughing with, sharing your lives with, maybe sharing the gospel together with in a community group who are no longer, they're not coming back. And not just because they found another church somewhere else. That's great. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're saying they left the church and they left Jesus. They made a shipwreck of their faith. Uh, something during the pandemic became more beautiful to them than Jesus. And it was either sin or it was something good that wasn't Jesus. And remember, it aren't just like bad things. These are things that could be good, good things that weren't, they stopped seeing them as a gift from God and secondary to him and saw them as kind of unto themselves on an island and things on the throne and they worshiped it. And I'm telling you guys, um, I know these are like sobering things to hear, but Paul names guys here. I'm not going to do that. That's, that'd be unhelpful. But I'm just saying, Paul puts names down, you know? Um, he handed them over to Satan. He's saying, don't be like them. The, the phrase, hand over to Satan, is just basically meaning he's, he's for a time, excommunicating them from, the church, from church membership so they would feel distance from Jesus by way of distance from his people, his church. In the hopes that in a moment of renewed spiritual lucidity, that they'd run back to Jesus. And, but sadly, many times that, that doesn't happen. <clears throat> All right, now, if that feels like heavy or scary, it probably should. Um, but if you're thinking, like, how can I be sure that won't happen to me? That's actually a good biblical question. I mean, the Bible sort of like, if you read Hebrews sometimes, it's like, says, it happens don't be like them, but also, like, how should we think, right? How do we wage the good warfare and fight so we don't end up, you know, in, in the same spot? And I, I would say, if that's your question, I, if, even if it's not, I'm just going to assume it is. Uh, it's a good question. I would say three things to you. This is not an exhaustive list, um, to be clear. But I would say three things. One, don't leave the local church. We are... We are Christians right now, you guys, in an age of individualism. We're American believers. That probably won't go away for all of our lifetimes. Uh, it's not to say individualism is the devil. There can be good things to that too. But um, as Protestant Christians, um, you know, who are individualistic, 
And, well, okay, yeah, there's a lot to say about that. But let me just say, don't, don't leave the local church. It's like people like, think they can just do it, and they leave, and they think, well, I, I, I don't need it. I just need my Bible and Jesus in my prayer closet. And, you know, maybe I'll go back someday. It's kind of good if I need it for a time. But, and it's just it's so illogical and unbiblical and unhealthy, and people just don't come back. Um, because here's the thing. When, when you leave Christ's people, you leave Jesus. And we, we don't, like, we make a distinction between that, but the Bible doesn't. Like, we are the body of Christ. Like, do you guys believe, as Christians, do you believe that or not? Do you believe the church is the body of Christ, like the Bible says? And if you do, then if you leave the body of Christ, how can you think you're not leaving Jesus? You're leaving him. You, you, you and I, we, we are um, incapable of running that race ourselves, right? Uh, I think John Piper, another pastor here in the city, says that Christianity is a community project or something like that. I heard him say that a long time ago. Uh, it's another, another way of saying it, right? It, it is, we cannot persevere uh, unto ourselves. Don't leave, don't leave, don't leave the local church. And if and when you leave Hiawatha, find another loving, Bible-preaching, gospel-centered church, put down roots, and don't leave that one then. Uh, so, all right. Second is, be wary of theology that seeks to add to grace alone. I would say, memorize verse 15. Like, seriously, memorize that verse this week. What is the gospel? What's the trustworthy saying deserving of your time to think about? Worthy of your attention? Worthy of you to put everything else down to think about this week? Write it out, memorize it? to write it on your heart, to believe it, and to believe what it doesn't say? What's not, what's not trustworthy? The Bible never says that the law is trustworthy, never says that the, the, the stipulations of the old covenant are worthy of our trust or deserving of full acceptance, right? Because you are not mediated to God anymore based on what you do. The best of things, the most obedient you might feel that you are, is not keeping you saved. It is not getting you or keeping you in. It is simply union with Jesus every day. So be wary of teachings that add to grace. It's everywhere. It's on your Instagram feeds right now. I guarantee it. Some terrible meme that sounds really good. It's set against wheat fields and it's heresy. All right? <laughs> be wary of teachings. Know your Bible well enough. Stay grounded in the church enough. Know other Christians enough. Stay under biblical teaching enough where you have the right weapons to fight against that. If you're a grace-centered Christian, you will be looked upon as simple-minded, I guarantee it, other, by other Christians. You will not be advanced enough for them. You'll not be doing enough for them. But Jesus had the same thing, right? Paul had the same thing. The disciples had the same thing. They weren't ascetic enough. They weren't doing enough. Uh, uh, Mary had the same thing in Luke 10. Uh, Martha was, if you know that story. But anyway, um, all right. So be wary of teachings that add to grace alone. Third, and this is really, this is, I think, where the consolation comes from. Remember I said we're kind of on a circuitous, kind of like windy, emotion-filled path here today. Third thing is remember what it costs for God to win you to himself in the first place. There's a lot more keeping you in the faith than you realize. In fact, and so to add to this, I would say uh, we, could, we could say that Paul was, before Paul was, quote, handing these two men over to Satan, 
hopefully to spur them to repentance. Jesus, to use that same language uh, to Christ, which the Bible does, Jesus was handed over to Satan and to others for you and me. John 18, 30 and Luke 18 talk about how Jesus was handed over. Um, clearly, Satan was instrumental in the crucifixion. It wasn't just him. We know that. But clearly, he wanted to kill him. Um, but he's also handed over to sinful men, the Bible says as well. Same language. This is, this is why it's important to see this. The same language is used for Jesus' crucifixion as it is here for this minor church disciplinary act in the church in Ephesus. Another way to say this would be Christ's life was shipwrecked on the cross that you might be brought in to die for you that you might live. And so there's a warning for us to heed here, but there's also a gospel for us to bask in. Jesus already walked the path. He already absorbed our sin, including our disobedience and our propensity not to persevere. He took on the dark side and the dark language of this passage in our place already so we can have hope that we'll never bear it. Again, the the wrecked ship of Jesus' crucifixion is the very thing that will prevent your ship from breaking. The author of Hebrews says to to Christians on this same topic, he says, but you, true church, do not shrink back. You're not of those who shrink back. You're not of those who don't persevere. Because he knows they're clinging to him. You're holding faith in your hands. Not trusting in the works of your hands. You're holding him. Holding belief and trust in your hands. Grace. Showering yourself in the blood of Jesus every day. It's not your willpower. It's his ongoing daily grace. And so this is not just a two paths where, it got, where you know, Paul here, or God says, Don't take that one, but take this one. Then steps way back and says, let's see what happens. See, instead, the the idea is that there's no, Christ is the path, and there's no like chance we'll take the wrong one if if we're on the right ship. Does that make sense? Like, if you're holding faith, if you believe in Jesus, you can never, ever lose that. Christ was already handed over. The, the, the dark end to the path of apostasy, Jesus already somehow absorbed the language of that on the cross. So you say, he already took it. But if you stop believing that, if you stop believing Jesus substituted himself for you, it's much shakier ground. And there's, much, there's less a chance that you'll stay on the right path. But the, the crux is, are you believing in Jesus or not? Or like these false teachers, are you starting to add works to grace? Are you starting to fight with your own hands rather than believing in the works of his nail-pierced ones for you? The worst of people are saved through the most horrific of deaths so that we might stand on the trustworthy foundation of grace and fight confidently in the war of the ages. That's what he's saying. Let's also not bury the lead, right? We'll end with this. The Bible says, accept the gospel to a Christian. So that's what I'm going to end with saying to you guys who are saved. If you're not saved yet, I hear this as well. This is what it means to become a Christian. I invite you to accept this today. But to Christians, 
Accept the gospel fully. In verse 15, accept it. It's deserving and worthy of your attention, Christian. If you graduate and move on from it, you are just like the false teachers in Ephesus. If you grow bored with it and you look for another advanced level of Christianity, you are just like the false teachers in Ephesus. And you run the risk of becoming another Hymenaeus or Alexander. That's, that, that's why it's here in context of fighting the good warfare. It's de- we're not deserving of God's love. We're not worthy of trust. But he's worthy, right? He's, he's trustworthy. His saying, his gospel is. And yet, even as the undeserving, we are loved to hell and back. We are loved to the uttermost. So as verse 15 says, let me read it again. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this passage. It, 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 yeah, it's, it is a lot. It's really emotional. Uh, it's heavy and very light at the same time. Uh, God, I pray for us as a church. Protect us. Um, Help us to really take this seriously, this whole gospel thing, to wage the good warfare, at the same time to believe you've already waged it and it's finished. That, that, that kind of like beautiful, tension-filled uh, duality is, is tough to live in sometimes, but it, it's, man, it's so true. That's just our life. We're fighting and yet we're not. Um, we're waging war and yet we're not. We have weapons and yet we don't. Uh, we have union with you and that's sufficient. Um, it can feel like we don't sometimes, but, but we do. God, I pray that the trustworthy saying of the gospel would be something that never grows old in this church. Please cause that to be. Forgive us our sin. Make us new. Um, help us to look at this letter as a letter from you to us, not just Paul to Timothy, but it's really an example, like Paul said. It is something that happened at a point in history that has relevance for all of time. Because he was a real sinner, a murderer, who was saved, though he was undeserving, but he believed in the deserving statement of the gospel, the word of Christ, which was Jesus came to get us and save us. Praise be to God that God is that loving. Uh, In Christ we pray.